0: Good morning. Good
1: morning. Come on in from the foyer. We're going to get started. Let's stand together.
0: My soul. You guys, grab, grab a
2: seat. Amen. Good morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It is good to see you're smiling. Actually, I can't see your faces right now because of the lights, but I'm assuming you're smiling and happy and overjoyed to be here gathered with the family of God. Um, it is. Nice to have rain, it's nice to have sunshine, and I love the springtime because I don't have to water my grass yet. It's just, a, it is, God is good in many, many different ways. Um, a couple announcements, open arms, baby bottle boomerang. Next week, what's, what's the holiday next week? Father's Day. And when are the baby bottle boomerang, they do back, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> next week, but... It's kind of weird, I was telling, I was talking to someone this week that we're not filling up these baby bottles and there's not 40 pounds of change sitting out in a basket that we're delivering there, um, but get online and fill up one of the online baby bottles um, so we can help them and help support open arms for the sanctity of human life and to love these young moms and dads who are stepping into life at a faster pace than they anticipated, maybe made some bad decisions. We want to love them and care for them through open arms. What a wonderful, wonderful um, team they have over there. So baby bottle boomerang, remember your baby bottles. Um, The other thing is high school graduation. I think they're still doing it. I think people are still graduating. I think there's parties going on. I think that's what I'm doing tonight. But Jason German, Jason German, Jason Brownlee is going to honor them on the 22nd they're going to do a barbecue so if you know a high schooler here from the church that maybe might not know they're going to do a barbecue for and to celebrate um, our graduating seniors so let them know um that's in the highlight page as well um we also have the read scripture now i ranted about it for at least 10 minutes last week i'm not going to do it again i promise but i will continue talking about it for the next year and a half um we are going to read scripture and there is an app the read scripture app that has it mapped out what passages you're reading through the day and if you don't want to get the app on your smartphone or if you do not have a smartphone i know some people still have flip phones and it's kind of cool they're in museums mostly now but some people still have them i'm talking about one person in particular but i will not mention his name the uh a close dear friend of mine the uh we have them printed out out at the information booth, the reading schedule. We would love it if you'd participate with us. Our hope and our goal is as we go through this next year that we are steeped in the Word of God as we read every single day together, that everybody in the body will be reading through together so our conversations will be um, about the Word, where we're going, what we're doing, and we can see just the continuity of the Word of God. It'll be a beautiful thing. We'll also be doing our prayer. Now, I talked about the prayer time last week, and there's been a bit of confusion, and part of that is my fault. I couldn't find anyone to blame, so I will confess it right now. Um, One of the things is on the flyers, on your highlight page, it says prayer at hisplace.org is where you reach out. And in some of the other literature and writing and stuff, it says prayers, it is prayer Without the S. So if there's an S at the end of your prayers, that sounds weird. That's the wrong one. Um, Please reach out to Sharon. Sharon, would you raise your hand so we can see out there? There you go. Um, Send her the time slot that you would like. Now, how often do you have to pray? Well, pray without ceasing. But for this, with this, we are praying. We are asking you, asking the body of Christ here to grab one hour a week. So it's not one hour a day, it's one hour a week to commit to praying for this church, the leadership, the body of Christ, to pray for the church at large, to pray for our world, to pray for our leadership, but just one hour a week to commit to prayer. Um, So you can reach out um, to her and reserve your slot. And I think the 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. is taken on Tuesdays so you'll have to fight for something else Um, but we want to be praying for this body we want to be a church of the word and of prayer Um, the other thing is many of you guys send in your prayer requests and so on Monday Melinda sends them out to the elders we if you would like this prayer team 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to be praying for you. Send your prayer requests out, and we will be praying for this body. So if there's a need, a hurt, um, we want to pray for you. So send those forward. And both of those will be starting July. You can pray and read your Bible till July 1st, but we're going to start these programs starting July 1st. Um, The last thing, I think, is that it? Of all my list of things I must talk about. Yes, it is. Um, We'll be going through um, and meeting as we are now with every other pew through the month of June. So in July, it'll be the 5th of July, we'll be back to, I have a Bible and a phone so I can't do air quotes and say normal, Um, but so, and then there will be coffee at that point, I promise. (laughs) There'll be one cup for everybody. But... Everybody gets their own straw. So it'll be, it'll be a wonderful time of fellowship <laughs> and sharing. This morning, I would like to read, as we're continuing on in the book of 1 Peter, I'm going to read Isaiah, the end of 52, starting verse 13. Isaiah 52, 13, and I'll read all the way through Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors let's pray holy father heavenly father creator god we we gather here to worship and celebrate we worship you in our giving we worship you in our serving we worship you in song, we worship you in the word. Father, the reason we worship you is because you are worthy of worship. And in your sovereignty, your your perfect plan, you sent your son to live holy and perfect, not be esteemed by men, but to die on the cross, shed his blood on our behalf so that we can know you, be right with you, be adopted by you. Father, we worship you and we praise you because no man could think of this, this beautiful plan of salvation that you have given us. So we worship as we gather together, we worship you because you sent your son to die for us. It's because of Christ on the cross that we can love one another, care for one another, lift one another up. Father, we we honor you and we love you. Thank you for this body here at his place. Thank you for the church at large, but thank you for the people that you have gathered here. In your son's precious name, amen.
1: Oh can
3: grab a seat. Wow. I feel like we could just go home now. Uh, Dia was kind enough to loan me a copy of that song during the week and just got to worship on my own with it. What an amazing song. What an excellent choice. Thank you guys for your for your work. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 8. Our text today is going to start in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Would you please stand as we read God's Word? Finally, all of you, Now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry with respect to this. They're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word for you today. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we need nothing more than to hear from you. Uh, I pray that you would enable me to speak your word rightly with you in mind at all times, Lord, I pray you'd give us wisdom to sort through the true meaning of this really hard passage. We need your Spirit's help to do that. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm sure he was trying to encourage me, but Jason German, um, just a couple of days ago, I was in the office studying away for this sermon and he passes me a yellow piece of paper, and I've taped it right here in my Bible. It says, speaking of Peter, 1 Peter 3, verses 19 and 20, quote, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure packet, pa- passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I just don't know for a certainty just what Peter means. That's a quote by Martin Luther. <laughs> Martin Luther didn't get it, <laughs> so I think I need to approach this with uh, humility. If you look in your commentaries... Um, There is a wide range, a diversity of of opinions on how you translate uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. When we get there, I'll explain what I am confident the true meaning is. Um, Your confidence should not be based in my confidence. Your confidence should be based in God's Word. I am confident that God's Word is crystal clear in what it means. I also recognize that I'm a couple thousand years separated (laughs) from the time and the language at which this was written. And so um, I am going to present to you what, what I am convinced is the proper uh, understanding of this passage based on the surrounding context that Peter gives us. But I'll do it hopefully with some humility, recognizing that I'm just a guy and Martin Luther couldn't get it. So uh, all right, look at uh, verse 13, if you would. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Oh, we find ourselves in the section that's talking about suffering. Now, I'm gonna see how well I've done so far in helping you guys to understand the roadmap of 1 Peter. First Peter chapter one, the first half of chapter one is about, I, I'm, I've got electronic ears and I'll turn them up, but I need you to speak loudly. First, first half of first, 1 Peter chapter one is about, I have no idea what you all just said, but I'm sure you said joy and suffering. All right. The second half of 1 Peter chapter 1 through chapter 2, the first half is about holiness. That's right. Thank you very much. God calls us all to a holy life, separated to him for his purposes. Then from the second half of 1 Peter chapter 2 to the second half of 1 Peter chapter 3, we've been studying Sub, what i 'm sorry submission, thank you very much submission to god given authority and from the second half of first Peter chapter three until the end of chapter four, now we 're in the section that we 're in that Christians are called to suffer. Christians are called to suffer. Wow, called and suffer Those are two words i don 't really like being side by side together, just like i didn 't like necessary in trials in chapter one, being very close together, but they are. So let's consider this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, what Peter is saying, it's really unlikely that people are going to persecute you for doing what's right. Because most of the time, what's right, people are fine with. But when he talks about doing what is good, it means what is honoring to God in relation to a culture that is separate from God. Now remember, in this culture, Christians are not thought well of at all. They're, They're disrespected, they are suspected of having treasonous ideas towards the Roman government. Um, Christians were considered atheists. Why? We didn't worship, Christians didn't worship the pantheon of Greek gods, and they didn't give the pinch of incense to Caesar. So they were considered atheistic, because they, I guess they just didn't have enough gods. They were also considered to be perverse, because they did not understand what the Lord's Supper was about, the symbol, symbols of the blood and the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper, and they didn't understand uh, what the love feast Christians were having were about. And so Christians were really ill thought of in this culture. And to become a Christian, you put a target on your back, all right? that's the context. But even in that context what does Peter say? Now, if who is there to harm you, to persecute you for your faith? If you're zealous for what is good, if your your great desire is to please God, and it's a rhetorical question. Usually the answer is nobody's going to persecute you for that, but sometimes it does happen. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and that's the key for righteousness' sake, is in obedience to Christ, representing Christ truthfully, and in the way in which, we'll find out later, he tells us that we should represent him truthfully. There's actually a, a heart condition that we need to have while we represent him, and it and it shows in how we deal with other people. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. In fact, the words will be aren't even in the Greek, so you could say it this way, you are blessed. In other words, there's a blessing to believers when Christians suffer. And there are are four things that I see here that answer the question, why must Christians suffer? Why must Christians suffer? The first one is this. It opens doors for the gospel. Christians, when they suffer for the sake of righteousness, enduring it, staying true to Christ, and enduring it in the right manner, it opens doors for the gospel because look what he says next. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And this is a quotation from Isaiah 8, 12 and 13, which reads this way. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. And you notice Peter just swaps Jesus' name in there for Yahweh Sabaoth. By the way, if you don't know Yahweh, the, 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 the covenant name of God is applied to both Father and Son, and Holy Spirit. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Isaiah indicates, don't fear what they fear. And this is, uh, when Isaiah wrote this, the uh, the uh, invading armies were coming in to take the people away into captivity. And God is telling him in his context, don't fear what the people of Israel fear who are rebelling against me, those are rebelling against me, don't have the fear that they fear. You instead, Isaiah, Fear me, reverence me, and let your actions, how you live your life, show that I am the one that you reverence. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but instead, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, he's the one that we live for. Recognizing who he is, we live for him. He is holy and what has he called us to be? Holy, right? You shall be holy for I am holy. He said that in the previous chapter. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Now notice, this, this this is in the context of living a righteous life that actually brings attack or persecution from unbelievers, causes suffering in the life of the believer, but nevertheless it also results in them asking a question why do you hope in Christ? Why do you believe the promises God has made? I can see you believe them because of your life. Why in the world do you believe it? That's the idea. Think about this. A Christian life lived in a God-honoring way through the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with his word has power to open doors for the gospel power to open doors for the gospel now the gospel must be shared with words because there's a content we've got to get across they need to know who they are and their sin and jesus and who he is and and his uh uh, his satisfactory death on the cross in the place of all who trust him for sins they need to know information about him and then the holy spirit will take that and grow faith in their hearts In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. This word reason is going to come up a little bit later in a different context, but it's almost like a trial. It's almost as if you're put on trial and you're asked to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, this is why I hope in Christ. Are you prepared to give that defense? Are you living your life in such a way that people are asking you about your faith. Why do you trust in Christ? Christians should live extraordinary lives. Extraordinary in what way? That we're just simply devoted to God and his pleasure. Now, none of us do this perfectly. Neither do I. We all have room to grow. But that's who we're called to be. Remember, we're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us, right? We've seen that. All right. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, we need to do this with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. Interesting. The word gentleness means, means it's the idea of we need to be humble. We need to be considerate towards the person we're talking to. This unbeliever that's even persecuting us, perhaps. We need to be not self-focused, but focused on their good. This gentleness... Um, this, this gentleness is the exact same word that's used for wives towards their husbands in chapter 3, verse 4. Guess what? We're all called to this, are we not? We're all called to not be full of, well, I'm called not to be full of Dave, and you're called not to be full of you, but we're to be careful about the person we're speaking to and about their eternal destiny. So the words that come out of our, out of our mouths will be respectful And gentle. The word gentle is the word, I'm sorry, that that I think I misspoke, that was applied to wives towards their husbands. And the word respect is the same word that was used in chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 2, referring to how slaves would respond to their masters respectfully, and referring to how wives should respond to their husbands. Again, these are concepts that are common to all of us. We're all called to be gentle and respectful of other people. Part of the reason I don't do Christian social media because gentleness and respectfulness is hard to find. I'll stop there. Why is this important? Why is this important? I'll tell you a story. Um, A number of years ago, less than 10, more than five, somewhere in there, there was a young man that had come to me Through his mother, Um, he was married, newly married, and he was not yet a believer, and he wanted marriage counseling. And um, of course, marriage counseling for a non-believer, what do they need most of all? They need to have a heart transformation by coming to faith in Christ, because that's the only way you're going to have the kind of heart that you need to treat your wife the way that the Bible calls you to treat her, right? Right? Well, and so this was pretty much an evangelistic endeavor, and we had him over in our house, and we'd we'd care for him, and eventually had his his wife in our home, um, and just kept continuing to show him the gospel while showing him the principles for marriage, knowing that unless he understood the gospel and came to faith in Christ, those principles weren't going to help him too much because he wouldn't have the heart to follow through. So it was a gospel thing that we were doing. And... I really felt like, this is just Dave's opinion, this and two bucks will get you a bad cup of coffee somewhere, but, but I really felt like he was getting closer and closer to, to wanting to turn his heart over to Jesus. Well, there was a lady in our community, um, a believer, that uh, for some reason just decided she was fed up with him not praying the prayer. So she drove over to this young guy's house and she manipulated him into immediately praying the prayer. You guys know that you're not saved by praying a prayer, right? <laughs> it's, you're going to see later in this, in this chapter, salvation comes to a heart that is appealing to Christ for a clear conscience by removal of sin. It's a heart thing that expresses itself often in prayer, but the prayer itself doesn't save. Well, so this young man was told he was a believer because he prayed that prayer. And you know what happened to his life? It just got worse and worse and worse. But unfortunately, now he was inoculated, it felt like, to the gospel, Can you see how important it is how we share the gospel? That lady did not show respect or gentleness in how she dealt with him. She was only concerned with what? She felt it was his time, and she was the one who determined that, as if that's not up to God. How we share the gospel is just as important to God that we share. Why? If you think about it, well, continue reading. He'll explain it. We need to do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why? Suffering for good actually opens doors for the gospel, but suffering because we've done evil, and in this case it could be even not being respectful or gentle with the people to whom we're sharing, closes doors for the gospel. It's important how we do it. But let me notice, he says in verse 16, we need to have a good conscience. What does it mean to have a good conscience? Well, let's see if we can define what conscience is. I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 2 real quick. Romans chapter 2 verse 14 says this. When Gentiles, that would be unbelievers in this case, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. What I want you to see is how the Bible defines a biblical conscience is God's work in the human heart, even at birth, to establish within you a sense of his moral law, right and wrong. That's why, you know, honestly, even with unbelievers, we share much in common as far as what we see as being right and wrong. In most cultures, it's wrong to murder, right? Okay, that's why, why? because as... Um, people made in the image of God, part of that image that he stamped upon every human being. And by the way, that image is best defined as what God gives us to fulfill our roles as his ambassadors, as sub-regents over the earth in his place, serving him by, like they said in the garden, ruling over the world. So God, when, when, he, when he gave you his image, he gave you everything you needed to live in such a way that you could obey that original commandment. Well, guess what? In the fall, our consciences to some degree have been damaged because all of God's mark upon us has been marred a bit. But even so, we everyone has a conscience unless they've pushed it down and pushed it down and it's become seared. That's a fairly rare person. Believers, when we share the gospel with other people, not only are we to do it with gentleness and respect, but we're to continue to have a good conscience. That means we're not to do anything that we believe Violates what God has given us in his word. Interestingly enough, the Bible also says in 1 Corinthians 8, 12, remember the discussion about, uh, did I even mark that in my Bible? Remember the discussion about uh, meat sacrifice to idols that that church was having? In the Corinthian church, people were coming out of a pagan background and because they'd formerly eaten uh, at 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 uh, pagan temples, meat sacrificed to idols, their consciences were compromised. Even when some of them got saved, they still couldn't be around seeing other believers eat meat that was bought on the market that had been sacrificed to idols. Their conscience was compromised. And Paul said in that passage that even if their understanding about that meat is wrong, it's wrong to compromise their conscience. So there's a principle about this. Even if you don't fully understand What God would have you do in a a given moral situation, do not compromise your conscience because you believe it to be sin. That's what your conscience is telling you. And you should never do anything before the Lord that you believe to be sin because God counts that to sin. Read that passage in 1 Corinthians carefully and you'll see that. All right, back to 1 Peter. So we make a defense to those who ask us because of the way we live. They ask for a reason, for the hope, the trust that we have in Christ, yet we do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, when you're verbally abused, when people speak evil of you, that's reviling. If they threaten you, they revile your good behavior. That's the key. They're reviling us. Why? Because, because we're living for Christ. We're doing what's right in his eyes. They revile your good behavior in Christ that they may be put to shame. In other words that they may recognize that what they're saying is wrong. But that's not the only goal, is it? We even have a greater goal than that. For it's better to suffer doing good for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. We want to see them saved. That's that's the goal. The purpose of living our life for Jesus is that others might that Jesus might be pleased and others might come to to salvation in him. And we see that in chapter four, verse six, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. But we're going to get there in a minute. All right. So why should Christians suffer? Why are Christians bound to suffer? Why should Christians suffer for righteousness sake? Why should Christians be called to suffer for righteousness sake? Because it opens doors for the gospel. The second reason is this. It displays God's saving patience to the unsaved world. It displays God's saving patience to the unsaved world. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, and that word once means once for all time. He doesn't need to suffer twice. Every sin that he was going to die for, he died for at that time. Christ suffered once for all time for sins, the righteous, and that's in the singular, that means Jesus alone was righteous, for the unrighteous, and that's in the plural, that's all of us, that, for this reason, that he might bring us to God. Now you notice, our suffering, spoken about for the sake of the gospel, is because Jesus suffered to bring people to God. Those two things are absolutely related, are they not? Because we share the gospel so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, their eyes might be opened and they come to faith in Christ, no longer separated from God by their sins. For Christ suffered once for all time, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Now, I, I got to be careful here because how you read this is really important and you could end up with some heresy real quick if you, if you don't read this right. The biblical definition of death is simply this. The separation of the spirit or soul, that which is immaterial, from the material, the body. The words spirit and soul, if you do a study across the breadth of the scriptures, really refer to the immaterial portion of us that goes on beyond the body. Sometimes it refers to a little bit more to one aspect of it or another, but ultimately those terms are synonymous. How do I know that that's the case? How do I know that that, that, that that's what death is? If you think about it, what is it, Genesis... uh, um, I'm Trying to remember Genesis. Is it Genesis six? No. Nope. Remember when Rachel died? I don't remember what passage is. When, uh, when Ra- Rachel died, the Bible says that she was giving birth to her final son, right, Benjamin. And it says, as her spirit or as her soul was leaving her body, that's the definition of physical death. Got it? Now, there is another way the Bible talks about death, which we're going to talk about in, a, in another in a minute—spiritual death. But that's another thing to be discussed altogether. Christ also suffered once, verse 18, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. And it means that Christ's death occurred in the physical realm. He died physically. But his resurrection was also a physical res- resurrection. But where did the power for it come from? That's when it says, being made alive in the spirit. Now here, again, got to read this carefully because Jesus' spirit never died. That's the nature of, of spirit. They do not die. They continue to exist. What it means being made alive, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit in the realm, in the spiritual realm, where it's unseen, but that power is exerted, and Christ remained alive in the Spirit, even though his body was dead, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Whoa, spirits in prison. Who are these people to whom Jesus is preaching, proclaiming? Because it says Jesus... In the spiritual realm, went and preached. So, who are they? Let's see if we can figure that out. Verse 19, in which, that's in the spiritual realm, he, Christ, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, Who are they and where are they? Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Ah, now we start to understand. This involves people who are alive at the time of Noah, who were in rebellion against God. If I read from Genesis chapter 6, five through eight, it says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, during this time, the whole earth was in rebellion against God. The whole earth, the intention of man's heart was only evil all the time, 100% of the time. That's why God brought the flood and it was worldwide to destroy all of humanity and even that which we touched, like the animals and the plants and everything else. God's judgment was upon men and women, sinful humanity. Because why? They were in active rebellion because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Interesting, the word patience, I like how the King James translates this, his long suffering. God put up with humanity. For how long? Well, as much as 120 years because not too long before that text that I just read, God said the days of man are going to be 120 years long. And it doesn't mean their lives are limited to that. It means at the end of 120 years, I'm, I'm everybody out of the pool. Actually, no, everybody in the pool and you just keep treading water until you can't anymore. They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Interesting, the Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter. In other words, Noah did more than build an ark. He actually was calling out to his wicked generation saying, God is holy, God is righteous, and the only way you can be holy and righteous is through faith in him, because that's the only way anyone ever gets righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own, do we? So Noah was calling out to his wicked generation. Who was doing it? Jesus, through him, at the time, just before the flood. Consequently, It's probably better to read this passage reading like this. Jesus was put to death on the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison. That's how the New American Standard reads it, and I think that's appropriate. Why? Because from Peter's perspective, those people had died and were in Hades. That's what the Bible describes the place of the unsaved dead. We know it as Hades. They're in that place until the final judgment happens. They're in prison. And Peter's saying they're now in prison, but Christ in his mercy went and in the spirit preached through Noah to them. Why? Again, when you see it in chapter 4, verse 6, so that they might live in the spirit the way God does. But guess what? How many people were saved? Only eight were delivered. Noah's preaching was only effective for his family. Apparently so. But look what it says in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. The ark was being prepared for something like a century, maybe a century and 20 years, and then there were just a few, just eight persons out of that entire generation of humanity that were brought safely. They escaped. They were delivered through water, and if you think about it, um, the water is a picture of what? Of judgment, because that's how God judged the world. Thankfully, There's a rainbow out there, right? I don't know if there's one out there today, but it reminds us that God says, you know what? In order to save you, I need to not kill you every time you guys go south, which happens constantly. So my grace puts that rainbow in the sky as a promise that I'm not going to destroy the world like that again until the end when he uses fire. That promise is the basis for all the other promises that lead to our salvation. That's amazing. So he says, The eight persons were brought safely. They were delivered through this water, this judgment of the flood. And then in verse 21, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Oh, boy. How does baptism correspond to the waters of the flood? Well, if you think about it, what does baptism picture? Jesus' death. Why did Jesus have to die? He took our sins upon him, and then God placed our judgment upon him which resulted in his death, right? When he gave up his spirit. By the way, there's another text for what death is, the departure of the spirit from the body. Jesus died taking upon himself the judgment of the Father, the eternal judgment that you and I deserved. And when we picture him, someone going down in the waters of baptism, we're picturing Jesus' death as a result of the judgment due us. So there's a commonality between the ark and the waters of the flood, and baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. Oh boy, here's another possibility we get weird weird about. Does baptism in and of itself save? The next few words indicate no. Why? Because he's talking about the external act, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, just getting dunked in water doesn't save you. That makes you wet. Maybe cleans you off a little bit. But why would he say it saves you? Well, you need to think like they thought in the first century. When someone came to faith in Christ in the first century, almost immediately they proclaimed their faith publicly by baptism. There was very little time between actually coming to saving faith and coming out publicly. I belong to Jesus. I'm lining my heart with Jesus Christ. I serve him. By the way, that means Caesar's not my Lord. That means I have a target on my back from the society, and their baptisms were done publicly. You know, we do... Is there a baptistry in this church? I don't even know. Uh, Where do we do baptisms? I'm sure you said right here. Okay. Um. You see, back then, it wasn't done in a church building with just believers. It was done in public. So that non-believers, who thought y'all were weird... And thought y'all were subversive, saw that person line up with y'all and saw that person say, I belong to Jesus Christ. Baptism and coming to salvation happened really quickly together at that time in history. That's why he can say, baptism now saves you, because he's thinking of baptism in the sense of what? But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is that if it's not, what is a good conscience? It's a conscience that's free from guilt and shame of sin. So when we appeal to God For salvation, what are we appealing to him for? Oh Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I hate my sin and I need to be changed and you're the only one that can do it and I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners like me. I appeal to you, save me. Cleanse my conscience that I might love you fully, that I might know you totally. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not the physical act, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. By the way, I I would suggest that this also tells us something about baptism. (laughs) Only those who recognize their need for a good conscience should ever be baptized. In the same way, the only people we should ever be encouraging to pray to God for salvation are those that recognize (laughs) that they need it. And they're old enough to be able to appeal And that appeal is always made through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So, why, why do Christians suffer? Why are we called to suffer? Why must we suffer for righteousness? The first thing was it opens the doors for the gospel. Number two, it displays God's saving patience to sinners just like God displayed it through Noah's preaching for like a century plus to unbelieving people. Number three, it sanctifies our desires, it makes our desires holy. Why can I say that? Since therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And it's an imperative. It's a command. Equip yourselves. It's a military term. Get ready with a way of thinking. And, And I want to tell you that scripturally speaking, what you do is driven by what you desire, which is driven by what you think, what you focus on. That's why the Bible can say, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What you focus upon... In your mind, and you see as valuable, that influences your desire, which changes your actions. That's why he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Notice the Bible is written in words. Words come in through your ears and go into your mind. And the Holy Spirit takes them, applies them, illumines your mind to understand, welcome what God is saying. And then your desires, as you continue to focus on what the Word says, continue to accept it as true, your desires begin to change. And then, lo and behold, your actions change. since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What way of thinking? Be willing to suffer on his behalf. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Do you mean if I just go through a little bit of suffering, I won't sin anymore? You mean like that total sanctification thing that I've had some of my friends talk about? No. Total sanctification doesn't happen until heaven. I'm not perfect yet and neither are you. I'm scared of people say they are because they've got a wrong view of themselves. What, he, what he's saying is, though, that suffering has a cleansing, has a sanctifying effect on us. Why? Because when you are set in your heart and mind that when you are living for Christ and, and persecution, suffering, because you were living for Christ, comes your way, and you're determined that I'm going to honor Christ by enduring this in the way that he calls me to do it, we are now, verse 2, We're no longer living for the rest of the time in the flesh for human passions but rather for the will of God. See, suffering sanctifies. Why do we need to be sanctified? Why do we need to actually arm ourselves with this way of thinking? Well, frankly, because our original way of thinking was the opposite of this. What is our original way of thinking? (laughs) Stinking, yeah, that that works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this. You and I we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now here's a different way that the Bible uses dead. He doesn't mean physically dead. You were physically, no, that's not what he's saying. Spiritually, you were dead. Spiritually dead does not mean spiritually unresponsive. When the Bible talks about being spiritually dead, it means spiritually hostile to God because your desires are for yourself to follow Satan and in opposition to God. Be careful cuz some people will tell you that spiritual dead means spiritually dead means spiritually unresponsive. That can't be true. Why? Just talk to a believer about Jesus or an unbeliever about Jesus, sometimes you will see hostility coming out. If they were unresponsive to the gospel, they would just sit there. But they are responsive. I don't want it. See, spiritually dead means spiritually hostile to the gospel and that's what happened in the garden when God said on the day you eat of the fruit of the tree tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die they began to die physically but they died spiritually that day they began to struggle with hostility towards the commands of God why did they then hide We've been hiding ever since. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's not worked, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Romans 8:7 indicates that our flesh is always, for all time, hostile to God. That's why, until you are made spiritually alive, you are hostile to God. It's by the grace of God that we're saved. Praise God. We used to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? <laughs> yeah. that's Yes. Yes. We no longer want to live in the flesh as believers, and suffering helps us to prioritize our love for Christ over those old fleshly desires. It is a blessing. That's why it says rejoice when you face various trials, because God intends them to bless you, to strengthen your faith, and to cause you to persevere to the end. Now he gives another reason, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for what the Gentiles want to do. Here's what I want you to see. Not only does suffering for righteousness' sake in the life of the believer open doors for the gospel, not only does it display God's saving patience to sinners, not only does it sanctify our desires, but it brings eternal perspective, which we really need. It helps us to see things in people the way God sees them, right? That's why he says the time has passed. He's talking to us as believers. What time has passed, in other words, since you got saved... There's no more time for what used to happen. Because he says, the time has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Have you ever met somebody where you shared the gospel with them? They were re- relatively young and they said something like this. Well, I believe what you're telling me. I recognize my sin. I'll give my life to Jesus in a few years after I've sowed my oats." Y'all heard that? Anybody heard that? I've heard that. Uh, dumb as a box of hammers. Because look what it says. The time that's passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound as believers? May it never be. And then he describes what we used to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And I'm not going to describe those in detail, but I think you get the gist. With respect to this, they, the unbelievers around you that still live the way you used to live, they're surprised. They're taken aback. That you no longer join them in the same flood of debauchery, in the reckless, wasted, abandoned life, and they malign you. They blaspheme you. Think about this. When a believer gets saved, he doesn't live the same way. Somebody that's still living the same way as they lived when they got saved isn't saved. At least after a little bit of time has passed for the Holy Spirit to work on sanctification. There's no such thing as an unchanged believer. No such thing as an unchanged believer. Now we're in process. Nobody's all the way there. Maybe my wife's close, but he knows that's a joke. They're surprised when we don't join them in the things we used to do. And they malign them. But notice this. They will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And the word account is the same word used for the reason you were to give to the non-believer when they ask you why you have faith in Christ, why you have hope in Christ. In other words, we give our account to them about our love for Jesus and why we're devoted to Him because ultimately, if they do not come to faith in Christ, they are going to give an account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Why? For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. And again, I think the way the NIV and the Holman Christian Standard translates it is better. This is why the gospel is preached even to those that are now dead. In other words, the gospel in the past was preached to people who didn't accept it or did accept it, but they're now dead. So that, look what happens, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the, way, in the spirit the way God does. In this case, judged in the flesh means this, they die. Because all of us ultimately have been judged in the flesh because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Every one of us will physically die. The Bible says it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment, right? So we're all going to ultimately experience the Edenic judgment because we're going to die. However, our eternal fate depends on whether or not we've trusted in Christ. And the goal The goal of our suffering in this world of unbelievers is so that even though when they die, when they're judged in the flesh the way all people are, that they might live in the Spirit the way God does, that they might hear the gospel, that the Holy Spirit might cause them to see and understand how much they need Christ to regret and and learn to hate their sin and turn to Christ alone by faith, begging for grace and mercy and that they might be made spiritually alive, that they might share eternity with us. So what's the point of suffering? I'll repeat it one more time. It opens doors for the gospel. When you suffer righteously in obedience to God for your faith, it opens doors for the gospel. Be prepared for those doors Be ready to share your faith. Number two, it displays God's saving patience, which he has displayed throughout history. Number three, it sanctifies our desires. It makes us love what God loves, and it changes our actions because once you change your desires, you change how you live. And finally, it brings eternal perspective, which you need to have, you and I both need to have because every person we see in front of us has an eternity to spend somewhere. We are not in charge of their eternity, but we are in charge of being the means by which the gospel can come. So not only need we we be ready to share the truth with folks, but we need to do it the way God calls us to do it, and we need to be willing to suffer for it so that they might be saved. And what does the Bible say? There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents Before the angels, by the way, before the angels means it's not the angels that are rejoicing, it's God himself. One sinner that repents. Do we have an eternal perspective? Are our desires being changed? Are we prepared to suffer? Are we a good display of God's saving patience towards those around us? Are we willing to suffer to open doors for the gospel? Lord, I've done my best to explain your word. Your Holy Spirit, I ask that you just fill in every gap. And I pray if I've said anything foolish or untrue, that you just cause that to fall to the ground and, and everybody forget it. But Lord, I pray that your truth would come through loud and clear, and that your saints, your body, will take joy in the fact that you give us the privilege of joining in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and that by them others might be saved. And we might be changed to be more like him, that our perspective and our desires might be conformed to your perspective and desires. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, it. amen.
0: Please stand with us as we close this service.
2: It is good to be together as the body of Christ and worship in the word and worship in song as we praise our Father. I'm going to read just a small passage from Romans 5 talking about who we are and what we're to do. as an encouragement to us as we go out today. Um, we do the task that God set before us. Hopefully a day of rest. Um, and then for this week, Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, who has been given to us. This is who we are, and this is where we stand. Um, as we go this week, let me just pray as we are dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have given us. Thank you that you sent your Son. Thank you that we can rejoice in all situations because you're a good God and you've given us good gifts. We do all this in your strength and your power for your glory and our good. Thank you for this body. In your son's name, amen.
1: Blessed be the name.